Hi, I'm Adrian, the host of She's So Cool, a female empowerment podcast. This show is for listeners who want to learn about strong and influential women. Welcome to She's So Cool, where you will hear the life stories of female changemakers each week. Each woman's story will inspire you to embrace who you are, love yourself fiercely, and pursue your dreams. I want to let you know that this episode includes topics that might be difficult for some listeners. These topics include sexual abuse, drug abuse, and miscarriage. Please check the show notes for resources about these topics if you or someone you know needs help or support. On this episode, you will learn about the struggles and successes of the famous singer and actress, Whitney Houston. When I told someone that I would be featuring her on the podcast, they asked me why. This person admitted to knowing only the negative parts of her life. Which makes sense, because that's the narrative that the media has primarily put out. So if you're also wondering why I chose to talk about Whitney Houston, I'm glad you decided to listen, because this episode will give you a better understanding of who she really was, rather than the person the media made her out to be. Have you ever changed a part of who you are to please others? Have you ever been in a relationship with someone who brought out the worst in you? Have you ever turned to mind-altering substances to cope with the difficulties in your life? These are all things Whitney struggled with, and I'm here to share her story so we can learn how she became one of the best-selling music artists of all time. In this episode, I will examine Whitney's rise to stardom her experiences with drugs and alcohol, her complicated relationships, and her identity as a Black woman in the music business. Before researching for this episode, I knew that Whitney was a famous singer that died tragically, and her song I Want to Dance with Somebody always puts me in a good mood. But I really didn't know how she became famous, or how she got addicted to the drugs that ultimately ended her life. She was born Whitney Elizabeth Houston in Newark, New Jersey. Although the public knows her as Whitney, her closest friends and family called her Nippy, which came from a comic strip character who was always getting into trouble. Whitney was the daughter of John Russell Houston Jr. and Emily Sissy Houston. She was born into a musical family. Sissy is a soul and gospel singer who sang backup for Elvis Presley and Aretha Franklin, who was Whitney's honorary aunt. Whitney was also the first cousin of soul singers Dee Dee and Dionne Warwick. According to the 2018 documentary titled Whitney, it was revealed that she may have been sexually abused by her cousin Dee Dee when she was young. In elementary school, Whitney was picked on for her light skin and nice clothes. She was non-confrontational and wanted to be friends with the girls that would chase her home and threaten her. Her older brothers, Michael and Gary, stood up for her and protected her against these bullies. 
In Sissy's 2013 book titled Remembering Whitney, My Story of Love, Loss, and the Night the Music Stopped, she said, I was proud of my boys for protecting Nippy, and I think at the time we were all helping her out. But years later, as Nippy struggled with the cruelties and hardships life threw at her, I found myself wishing she'd grown a protective shell of her own. I sometimes wonder what might have been if Nippy had developed tough skin herself. To combat the bullying, Sissy sent Whitney to Mount St. Dominic Academy, a Catholic school with a good academic reputation. Whitney didn't want to go to the Catholic school, but she didn't have a choice. It was around this time at age 12 or 13 that she decided she wanted to be a professional singer. She grew up singing in church, and Sissy discouraged her dream of singing professionally because she knew how cutthroat the music business was. In her book, Sissy said, I wasn't sure if my sweet Nippy, the girl who wanted so badly to be liked and was so easily bullied by her schoolmates, could face the rigors and meanness of that world. But no matter how much Sissy tried to talk her out of it, Whitney remained focused on her dream. When Sissy realized how determined Whitney was, she decided to help her. She taught Whitney to really feel what she was singing, although it wasn't always easy. Sissy made sure that Whitney would learn the right way, which meant rehearsing every day and singing with the church choir every Sunday, with no exceptions. While teaching Whitney how to sing from the heart, Sissy would constantly push her to aim higher and be better. Sissy admitted, I was tough on her, tougher than I would have been with someone who wasn't my own daughter. When Whitney was 16 years old, she had a summer job at a community center in East Orange, New Jersey. This is where she met Robin Crawford, who became her assistant, then her executive assistant, and finally her creative director. She was Whitney's point person. When her parents began having marital troubles, her grades dropped and she started pulling away from them. She couldn't take the fighting anymore and started partying, which included drinking alcohol and doing drugs. As soon as Whitney turned 18, she moved out of her parents' home and into her first apartment with Robin. In the 2017 documentary titled, Whitney, Can I Be Me?, Whitney's hairstylist and friend, Ellen LaVar, said, Robin provided a safe place for her. Robin loved her. Robin cared for her, was a friend to her. In that, Whitney found safety and solace. I don't think that she was gay. I think she was bisexual. If you loved her and she loved you, it's possible for her to get into a physical relationship. Because Whitney loved to be held and she loved to be embraced, and she wanted to feel protected. Although it has not been confirmed that Whitney and Robin were in a romantic relationship, many people in Whitney's life despised Robin for her sexuality and the close relationship she had with Whitney. In her book, Sissy said, I knew I didn't want Robin around my daughter, and I told Nippy that. 
If I had to guess, I'd say that Nippy was drawn to Robin's independence, her lack of concern about what other people thought. Nippy was fearless in a lot of ways, but she never stopped worrying about what other people thought of her. I think she admired Robin's ability to do whatever she wanted without worrying about anybody else's opinion. Before Whitney started her solo career, she sang backup for her mom. Initially, Whitney was nervous about going on stage alone. So Sissy faked being sick and convinced Whitney to perform in her place. Sissy said after that performance, Whitney never looked back. In 1983, when Whitney was 19 years old, she signed a contract with Arista Records led by one of the biggest names in the industry, Clive Davis. In the 2017 documentary, Kenneth Reynolds, the marketing executive at Arista Records, Clive is a master at pop music. He had a vision for a pop artist. And along comes Whitney, who was so moldable. She was the perfect vehicle for his foolproof vision. When Whitney signed on at Arista Records, Kenneth said, She was very insecure. She was always very concerned if people were going to like her, if people were going to accept her. And it's interesting because it was never really about the talent. It was about how she looked and how she presented herself. It took two years to complete her first album because Clive wanted to craft her image and choose the right songs and producers. Her self-titled debut album was released on Valentine's Day in 1985, when she was 21 years old. It was the first debut album and the first album by a solo female artist to produce three number one singles. A year after her death, this album was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. Her second album, titled Whitney, came out in 1987 and debuted at number one on the Billboard 200 chart, becoming the first album by a female artist to do so. In 1992, she sang several songs for the Bodyguard soundtrack, which is the best-selling soundtrack of all time. With the success of these albums, Sissy said Whitney went from being a relatively unknown model and singer to a celebrity. With her desire to please people and her natural shyness, Having fame hit with such a force was really difficult for her. During an interview, Whitney was once asked, How much has success changed you? How different are you? She responded, Success doesn't change you. Fame does. Money doesn't make you happy. And fame certainly doesn't make you happy. You've got to find the happiness in yourself. With fame came criticism. And to cope, Whitney turned to drugs. Concerned about Whitney's drug dependence, Robin went to Sissy. In her book, Sissy said, I might not have liked certain things about Robin, but I will say this. She cared a great deal for Nippy, and she wanted to protect her. Nobody had the courage to come tell me that Nippy was getting into something that was bad for her. Nobody except Robin. She didn't have any kind of relationship with me, but she still came to me in person to try to help Nippy. I always respected Robin for that. 
One of the main criticisms that people had was about her race. To some, Whitney was too black, and to others, she wasn't black enough. As Kenneth Reynolds said, her music was deliberately pop. Anything that was too black sounding was sent back to the studio. So for the black audience, the perspective was that Whitney had sold out. In 1989, Whitney was booed at the Soul Train Awards when her name was announced as a nominee for Best Female R&B Single. This moment was devastating for Whitney. And Kirk Wallum, her saxophonist, said, I don't think she ever recovered from it. Later, when a writer for Essence magazine asked her about the perception that she wasn't black enough, she responded, What's black? I've been trying to figure this out since I've been in the business. I don't know how to sing black, and I don't know how to sing white either. I know how to sing. Music is not a color to me. It's an art. That same night, Whitney met the self-prescribed original bad boy, Bobby Brown. From the beginning, Sissy tried telling Whitney that she didn't think Bobby was good for her. But I think it's safe to say that they weren't good for each other. Ellen LaVar, Whitney's hairstylist and friend, said, Whitney was getting high before Bobby ever came in the picture. I think they had a codependent relationship. Bobby didn't do drugs when he met Whitney. Whitney didn't really drink when she met Bobby. But they both had their thing. She had her drugs and he had his liquor. And when they came together, they both started doing both, which was terrible. While filming The Bodyguard in 1991... Whitney had a miscarriage, which was emotionally and physically painful for her. And it wasn't until after filming The Bodyguard that Whitney realized she had a problem with drugs. It became clear that her involvement with drugs was no longer recreational. She was doing them more out of necessity than just to have fun. The next year, she and Bobby got married and had their daughter, Bobby Christina, in 1993. Their daughter would later go by the nickname Chrissy. Whitney thought about walking away from the music business after Chrissy was born. She wanted to have a normal life, but that never seemed to be possible. Whitney's parents, brothers, and sister-in-law worked for her. Her father served as CEO of Whitney's management company, Nippy Inc. Kirk Wallum believed that he prioritized her career success and money over her health and well-being. So Whitney wasn't able to live the normal life she wanted because she felt obligated to keep performing for the financial benefit of her family, friends, and employees. By the time Chrissy was born, Bobby already had three children. He was notorious for sleeping with the girls on Whitney's tour. During an interview with Barbara Walters in 1993, Whitney said, They call my husband a womanizer. That's pretty harsh, you know? I don't think my husband womanized anybody. Because I know that if he wanted them, they definitely wanted him. I don't think it was about womanizing. I think boys will be boys. And they have their fun. And they play. Personally, I was shocked to hear her say this. It almost sounded like she was condoning his behavior, which doesn't make any sense to me. 
But her friend Ellen said that when Whitney got married, she got married forever. Yet the longer she stayed in her marriage, the harder it was for her to get out. As Whitney's friend Allison Samuels put it, Bobby brought her down because he wanted to be up. And she brought herself down trying to be on his level. She never had that security that she sort of needed. She never had that inner belief that she was this amazing person. She was always sort of doubting herself. And I think Bobby contributed to that tremendously. David Roberts, a former sergeant in Scotland Yard's Royalty Protection Unit, served as Whitney's bodyguard from April 1988 to October 1995. He wrote what he called a, quote, do something to help her report. Because it was his duty not only to protect her from outside elements, but also protect her from herself. After putting his concerns down on paper, he received a phone call where he was told, Thank you very much. Mrs. Houston has decided she doesn't need anyone of your caliber and experience again. Essentially, he was fired for voicing his concern about her drug dependency. Ever since Whitney and Bobby became an item, Bobby and Robin would battle for Whitney's attention. Her bodyguard said there came a time when Whitney couldn't tolerate it anymore and Robin finally left. Some speculate that she was paid off because she just disappeared. Allison Samuels attributes this as the downfall of Whitney because Robin was the person who was keeping her together. And despite their troubled history, after Whitney's death, Bobby said, I really feel that if Robin was accepted into Whitney's life, Whitney would still be alive today. During an interview with Diane Sawyer in 2002, Whitney was asked to name the drug that had been the biggest devil for her. She honestly and humbly responded, that would be me. She also spoke about the pain she experienced when her father was sick and demanding money from her. Ellen LaVar thought the biggest change in Whitney came when her father treated her in this way. The next year, Whitney semi-retired and went into rehab, saying, I wasn't happy by that point in time. I was losing myself. Her drug counselor, Lori Starks, said that Whitney didn't want to be in some rich, extravagant treatment facility. She wanted to be home. All that Whitney wanted to do was be married and raise Chrissy. She just wanted to be normal. Ultimately, Whitney struggled to get clean. She and Bobby got divorced in 2007, and her drug counselor said that Bobby getting into another relationship was very painful for her. Lori said that she thinks this is why Whitney reverted back to drugs. Saturday, February 11, 2012, was the day before the 54th Annual Grammy Awards in Los Angeles. That night, Clive Davis was hosting his exclusive pre-Grammys party at the Beverly Hills Hilton Hotel, where Whitney had a suite on the fourth floor. Her personal assistant, Mary Jones, found Whitney unconscious and unresponsive in the bathtub. The Beverly Hills Police Department and Fire Department were already at the hotel and responded immediately. 
They were unable to revive her, and she was pronounced dead at 3.55 p.m. at the age of 48. After her death, Sissy said, People say Whitney died from overdose of drugs. Whitney Houston was drugged out. I know Whitney Houston actually died from a broken heart. After Bobby Christina's own battle with drugs and addiction, she died on July 25, 2015, when she was 22 years old. In the 2017 documentary, Whitney's bodyguard, David Roberts, said there was no chance for Bobby Christina. She came into the environment just when it started to get worse. And I'm convinced now that had anyone read, listened to, or acted upon my reports, she would now be alive, as would her daughter. Whitney set a goal of becoming a professional singer, which she achieved after a lot of hard work and determination. But she wasn't ready for all of the things that came with her rise to stardom. She said, I enjoy singing. I enjoy performing for people. But there's a lot of it about the business and about what I do that's not fun. Whitney's favorite saying was, can I be me? As Whitney Houston, she made money and made her fans happy. But she couldn't be herself. She couldn't be nippy. This is a privilege that so many of us take for granted. We don't have to worry about what the world thinks of us. We don't have to worry about living our lives under a microscope. I can't imagine the amount of pressure that celebrities feel on a daily basis. To deal with the pressures in her life, Whitney turned to drugs and alcohol. She spoke about her drug habits by saying... It was an everyday thing. When it gets to the point where you're sitting in your home and you're trying to cover what you don't want people to know, it's painful. And then you want more, just so that you don't let anyone see you cry or let anybody see that we're unhappy. Whitney was judged and demonized for her involvement with drugs. But would this reaction to her addiction be the same if she wasn't famous? If she wasn't a woman? If she wasn't black? Sarah Allen Benton, author of Understanding the High-Functioning Alcoholic, said, Whitney's story is a cautionary tale. She was a brilliant artist with the potential for lifelong success. However, fame and fortune don't equate happiness. Whitney never felt like she could be herself. Let this be a lesson that we prioritize our wellness above our success. Let us live our truth so that we don't lose ourselves in trying to be what others expect of us. Whitney had several complicated relationships throughout her life. It appears that she had a strained relationship with her mom. She had a great relationship with her dad until he started demanding money from her. But her most strained relationships were with Robin and Bobby. It seems like Whitney and Robin had a great relationship, whether it was platonic or not up until other people started having opinions about it. Whitney and Robin had a special bond that Bobby didn't understand, which led to numerous verbal and physical fights between Robin and Bobby. I can't imagine what it was like for Whitney to have her loved ones push Robin out of her life. I'm so thankful for my friends. They love, support, and encourage me. And I would be devastated if anyone tried to take that away from me. Whitney and Bobby eventually got divorced, which allowed her to be removed from the toxic relationship they shared. 
I think this quote by Danielle Cope does a great job of putting this concept into perspective. You don't ever have to feel guilty about removing toxic people from your life. It's one thing if a person owns up to their behavior and makes an effort to change. But if a person disregards your feelings, ignores your boundaries, and continues to treat you in a harmful way, they need to go. I love what Whitney said about music being a form of art that is not defined by race. Even though this was her personal belief, the music industry, the media, and the public had their own opinions on the matter. However, she sang, someone was dissatisfied. She either sounded too white or she sounded too black. Initially, she was molded into a pop star by a white man who had carefully curated her first two albums, which were wildly successful. After being booed at the Soul Train Awards, she told Clive that she wasn't going to make another record he wanted. She said, I'm going to do me now. I think it's so important to advocate for yourself and the things that you want in life. Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, To be yourself in a world that is constantly trying to make you someone else is the greatest accomplishment. So go out there. Embrace who you are. Love yourself fiercely. And pursue your dreams. Although I'm sharing the life stories of these strong and influential women, you may notice that some details have been left out. I mention this because I want you to know that I have chosen to highlight specific parts of their stories. Because the content has been planned to help you reap the most benefit out of listening to this episode. If you find yourself wanting to learn more about these women, I am planning to share bonus content on Patreon when I launch my page. I'm waiting to launch because I want to hear from you about what kind of content you'd like. You can email me with suggestions at she's so cool pod at gmail.com. You can also see show notes, sign up for email updates, and provide episode suggestions on she's so cool pod.com. I want to thank you for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please tell your friends and family to listen. I want to build a community together, and you can do that by following along on Instagram at she's so cool pod where you'll find beautiful illustrations, inspiring quotes, and hints about next week's episode. The cover art was created by Gabrielle Bourgeois, and the music was created by Broke for Free.